Hello and welcome to episode 1251 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. How did you sleep? Did you sleep? Are you happy to have the trade deadline over? I slept very little. It was an exciting day, but I'm not that unhappy to have it over. We have no trades to talk about right now, so it feels a a lot more laid back than it did yesterday when it felt like we had an insurmountable task ahead of us, although I guess we surmounted it. It is. It's like a a pretty dramatic come down. I know the trades can still happen, but like things generally don't happen in like early August and the Justin Verlander trade last year was sort of the exception for this time of year. You'd be looking for more like Lance Lynn type moves or, yeah. or boring stuff like that. So it's just you have this this buildup. Of course, there were the Hand and Simber trade and, and the Machado trade, and there were other trades that happened well in advance of the deadline. But you kind of you, – you're cresting the mountain, right? And then you, you get to the summit, and then the summit push – and then you get to the deadline or realistically half an hour after the deadline and then you do your ready. So that takes you another few hours after the deadline and then it's over. Mm-hmm. And then you start going down, which is, uh, I can tell you from experience, not as easy as you think it would be. But there's a, I don't know how to keep this this analogy going, but I guess the, uh, you, you're not, you don't get the scenery of looking up at the mountain. It's not so beautiful. It's, look, the point is that August sucks. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at here. It's Can you just, throw a, a boat in there? Some nautical analogy just to, to make it more apt? Because that always a few, works. A few years ago, I was on a hike in the Columbia River Gorge. That's east of Portland, Oregon. And we were on the Washington side of the Columbia River. And we were probably about 1,000 or, or 2,000 feet above the river itself. So we're, we're that much plus a few more hundred above sea level. And we're on a hike, and uh, we're, we're up on the hills near the, the upper slopes, and we're, we turn a corner, and we're in some, some shrubs. There's some tall grass. There's some oak trees. This is in the uh, the rain shadow part of the gorge, so there's just, it's not very lush. And I looked to my right, and about 100 yards away, there was a small boat. There was just a small boat. It was sitting there. It, was, it did not seem to be attached to a trailer or property. <laughs> there, was just a, there was just a boat. Now... In the in the uh, distant history of the Columbia River Gorge, there was a great flood. Uh, the, these were the Missoula floods. They came from an ice dam breaking in what is present-day Montana. Huh. There was a very dramatic natural flood. This is recurring over uh, several thousand years, and it formed the gorge itself as these floods scraped the earth away and made their way toward the ocean. So either there was a boat that was just up there for no reason, or human history is actually far longer in its expanse (laughs) than we have given it credit for and this boat was some sort of archaeological discovery that i did not properly appreciate at the time well i myself am going to be in missoula montana in just a couple days so i'll keep an eye out for (laughs) any weirdly placed boats warn me if any ice dams start breaking because the flood put (laughs) portland under like 500 feet of water All right. So we are going to answer some emails, but the Nationals made some news or some news was made about the Nationals that we didn't get to talk about. So they traded Brandon Kinsler. We did talk about that. We didn't talk about why, because we didn't know why, but there was a report that surfaced today from Barry Sverluga in the Washington Post. And he says that that had to do with the Nationals believing that Kinsler was the source for Jeff Passan's story about the dysfunction in the Nationals clubhouse. And Kinsler has denied it. He says he's never talked to Jeff Passan. Obviously, Jeff's not going to say who his source is and shouldn't. But apparently, the Nationals believe that K- 
Kinsler was spreading rumors about their clubhouse disharmony, and so they shipped him out. And then, now, they have designated Sean Kelly for assignment because Sean Kelly, in the blowout game that we were talking about in our previous episode, he was called on to pitch in a mop-up role and apparently wasn't thrilled about it, and he gave up a homer, and then he threw his glove on the mound kind of petulantly, and uh, he admitted that he acted like a baby, but apparently that did not save him, and I guess he was glaring into the dugout too, and so that has come back to bite him. So Nationals down two pretty good relievers now, I guess, because of things that those relievers did or were believed to have done. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't read uh, or seen the, the Kinsler story because I have tried to shut off baseball for just a few <laughs> hours while I had the opportunity. Also, I was asleep. You were not. You just don't do that. You were kind of like a bat, I guess. Well, even bats sleep just in a weird way. Anyway, I didn't yeah. know that about Kinsler. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you were to trace some of these stories, if relievers are, are the the members of the team who get to stew the most, I mean, they're, they're already removed from the clubhouse or from the dugout for a lot of the time. Mm. They, uh, they just have a lot of time to themselves to sit and think and just let things fester. Mm-hmm. I, I might be making too much of this and who knows if, you know, even, even if Brandon Kinsler were say the source of, of this information to Jeff Passon, which we don't really know. Now the nationals have conducted their own investigation, I guess, got to punish them leakers. But even if Kinsler were the source of the information, that doesn't mean that Kinsler was the only reason for the information being accurate. It doesn't mean that, oh, Brandon Kinsler's gone, so now the clubhouse discord has resolved itself because it was all just this one bad apple, Mm -hmm. maybe two bad apples with Sean Kelly. But you wonder, (laughs) if he had behaved petulantly on any other day, would he have been cut? And I I don't know, but now there's a lot of focus on the Nationals as they try to patch things together why mm-hmm. winning 25 to 4 that's a pretty good patch job <laughs> yeah and, uh, only counts for the one win but still that was pretty dramatic yeah uh, but yeah no it's uh it's it's surprising to see a team make moves like that and it makes it a little more interesting and i don't know if that means the clubhouse is going to be better now but i don't know in in a distant objective observer way it it's uh it's more interesting to see teams making moves for reasons other than just wins and losses mm-hmm. yeah and every other team has been acquiring relievers via trade i think that i sorted the baseball prospectus playoff odds the top teams by playoff odds and the top 14 the nationals are 14th in playoff odds right now They and the Red Sox, who are first, are the only ones in that group who did not acquire a reliever via trade in July. So acquiring relievers via trade, we talked about it yesterday. That is all the rage right now because of how relievers are used in the postseason. So Red Sox bucking that trend, although they were evidently attempting to acquire Calvin Herrera from the Nationals. But Nationals not only not trading for relievers, but trading them away or releasing them because of... uh, off the field incidents or perceived incidents so definitely zigging where everyone else is zacking i think it's been a while since we did our uh a justin miller update so just to oh, just yeah. to do this the nationals reliever uh we, we were talking about justin miller because through his first eight games the season he had 10.2 innings pitched and 21 strikeouts with zero walks so let's just let's go back june 15th would be the next game so since since that was all true he's gone 21.1 innings with 21 strikeouts and 11 walks, five home runs, and an ERA of five and a half. He's been Justin Miller again, but that was fun. 
It was, uh, yeah. But it turns out, when you do the investigation, you're like, I wonder what changed. The answer was nothing. Nothing changed. Right. Justin Miller is that back was... in the majors, and he's mediocre. Yeah, that was what was mystifying about it at the time, is that we couldn't really come up with a reason why he was suddenly so dominant. So that uh, probably should have and probably did make us somewhat more skeptical. So it didn't last. All <laughs> if, right. you're, if you're a reader... Uh, and you're curious about a player. I think a, a handy rule of thumb. I don't. I don't think you or I is particularly enthusiastic about writing articles that say here's why this guy isn't actually good because those are just mm-hmm. unsatisfying. They make people mad, and they're kind of almost mean in intention, even if not directly. So mm-hmm. we don't. We don't. I. I didn't write any articles, and you didn't write any articles. They were like, here's why Justin Miller isn't this good because that. <laughs> that's just who's that for? Yeah. But if you're a reader and you're curious about a player who's really successful and you don't see an article about him take that maybe maybe as a hint <laughs> right when like when last year you refused to write about who was it the entire jason vargas year. that's right jason vargas yes <laughs> all right let's enter some emails so joseph patreon supporter says evan grant just pointed out that joey gallo has never had a sacrifice fly at least according to baseball reference we all trust baseball reference on that i think While seemingly impossible, there has to be a stat blast lurking about a fly ball power hitter who hasn't had a sack fly in more than a thousand career plate appearances. Explanations? Dumb luck plus lots of strikeouts? So this is odd, I think. It's somewhat odd. Joey Gallo has, what, almost 1,100 career plate appearances and has never had a sack fly. Now, obviously, he is one of the highest strikeout hitters in baseball or has been. So that's part of it. He just doesn't put a whole lot of balls in play. And then some of the balls he puts in play are home runs. So they're not going to be sack flies, but he does hit a lot of fly balls. So you still would expect him to have hit a sack fly at some point. He has had, let's see, 59 opportunities, it looks like, to hit a sack fly in his career. He has come up with a runner on third and less than two outs 59 times. And he's done very well in those situations. He has an 885 OPS, which is a 129 TOPS plus. So nice relative to his own performance in other situations. So he's been very good. He just hasn't happened to hit a sack fly. So do you, without looking, or maybe you already looked. So uh, runner on third base, less than two outs. In those situations, do you think Joey Gallo has been better, worse, or exactly league average over his career? In terms of scoring the runner, uh, I'll say better, I guess, because he's hit well. Worse. Oh. Apparently, according to Baseball Reference, on average, about 51% of the time, the the batter will score the runner from third with less than two outs. Joey Gallo is at 32%. He is 19 <laughs> out of 59, which is surprising given what you just said. Yeah, yeah. So I looked up on the batting streak finder on the play index at Baseball Reference. I looked up... Longest streaks with zero sack flies and at least one plate appearance. So this is streaks of games, and this is for non-pitchers. So Joey Gallo has the eighth longest streak of games with at least one plate appearance and no sack flies to start a career. So that is a stat that I have shared. I don't know whether that's a good stat or not, but... uh, There are seven guys who have had longer streaks of games, at least without one, and uh, most of those guys had more plate appearances in their streaks as well. So, I don't know, make of that what you will. Jose Uribe went 343 games to start his career, 
without a sack fly, and he had 1,076 plate appearances in that span. And uh, John Shelby, 1,093. Steve Sachs, 303 games, 1,258 plate appearances. So it has happened. I don't know. It might just be a random thing. Now, I uh, I was talking to someone. I don't remember exactly who it was. I was talking to someone very recently who said that he had heard that this season, this is now unrelated to Joey Gallo, but we're moving on. We're doing some stat stuff. He had heard that Nathan Iovaldi has not allowed a ground ball to third base. Do you think, <laughs> I'm checking now, do you think that's true or do you think that's not true? I think that's not true. It is. It's not true. He has, he has allowed several ground balls at third base. Uh, I'd love to know the origin of that fake fun fact. Someone, someone just decided to come up with a, a fake news fact about Nathan Avalbi and grounders. Maybe there was some kind of game of telephone and someone misheard something along the way. It's weird, right? He's allowed apparently this season 15 ground balls or bunt ground balls to third base, five hits. This isn't. This is not interesting. But uh, yeah, I would also love, I need to figure out who I was talking to so that I can ask for where they got that. Because what a, I was excited to hear it because I thought this is dumb and weird, but no, it's, it's just, it's just wrong. It's a lie. Yeah. All right. I'm going to read this one. This is not actually a question. It is sort of an answer. So we were talking on a recent episode about the slowest pitches thrown for strikes. And we were saying that we couldn't even really determine that because they're just data errors and it's hard to tell what were the real pitches and what were not. But we were musing about what the slowest pitch you could possibly throw and make it a strike is. And so we got an answer to that question from Andrew Dominiani. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I have pronounced it right in the past, but can't remember how I pronounced it correctly. He has written for the Hardball Times in the past. He is the one who checked up on our question about whether it is advantageous to bounce a throw as an infielder on the way to first base. So he wrote an article about that. So now he is looking into how slow can you throw a pitch in theory and still have it be a strike. So he says, assuming the ball is thrown from a high release point, seven feet, with a lot of extension, 7.4 feet, that leaves the front edge of home plate 51.7 feet away, and I'll assume the bottom of the strike zone is one and a half feet from the ground. Assuming the ball needs to at least graze this very forward lower edge of the zone to have a chance to be called a strike, and assuming normal aerodynamics of lift and drag, with drag coefficient higher at lower speeds, as is generally accepted. And assuming the spin rate is proportional to the release speed, as is normal for a fastball, etc., etc., he has attached plots of very complicated physical things that I can't even describe, and his answer is that given these assumptions, the slowest possible strike is a bit less than 27.5 miles per hour. Any slower than that, and there's no angle that makes a trajectory that will reach that point. So in theory, 27.5 miles per hour, you could throw a strike. I want to see someone try it. Jose Reyes might have attempted it on (laughs) Tuesday. Yeah, (laughs) didn't go well. Yeah, all right. Well, now we know, and I hope that someone takes this as a challenge. Even if it's not someone in an actual game, just uh, go do it on a mound somewhere and film yourself and send it to us. We do have a quote here, and now this is back to related to Sean Kelly. According to Mike Rizzo, quote, you're either in or you're in the way. He was in the way. So Sean <laughs> Kelly dropped after uh, being mad. I don't know if there was more that went into it. But now, when the Nationals were up, what was it, 25 to 1? And then Kelly allowed the home run. So on the one hand, you'd think maybe a pitcher would have fun. Like, somebody has to pitch, right? You have to complete 
the game. And I can't imagine I can't imagine how it feels to be the manager and figure out that one of at least one of your players is upset because you're winning a game by 24 runs. <laughs> like that's that's an absurdity right there. But then I wonder, would that be an appropriate time to use a position player? To pitch like he's not going to allow 24 runs probably <laughs> Sean Kelly no. I'm sure was just kind of checked out so would that be better because you don't annoy a reliever or would it be worse because then you're kind of maybe showing up your opponent I don't mm-hmm. really know what you're supposed to do here but Sean Kelly should clearly have stopped being a child <laughs> yes well there could be an unwritten rule against that I could see someone taking offense but eh, I think that The walls have been broken down when it comes to position player pitchers at this point, so live with it. All right, question from Mike. I assume this is referring to a specific plate appearance that transpired. He says, why does Andrew Romine have a red light on a 3-0 pitch against Garrett Cole? I understand why, under conventional logic, it's because he is a terrible hitter and he has a better chance as a broomstick than he does as a swinger, but on a 3-0 count against Garrett Cole, everybody knows he is getting a fastball right down the pipe. Isn't that, in some sense, an ideal time to swing? It's the best prediction he has at about the pitch he is about to get. So if he makes contact, it's likely to be the best type of contact he could make. If he whiffs or fouls, it's no worse than not swinging at all. And maybe more important, if he swings 3-0 every now and then, won't that make it somewhat more likely that one day when he doesn't swing, someone tries an off-speed pitch out of the zone on him? So the stat I would cite here is that this year, Major League batters have swung at 10.9% of 3-0 pitches that they have seen, which is the highest rate in the 20 seasons that are searchable via Baseball Savant. So as recently as 2010, it was 5.5%, and it was, uh, I think, even lower than that the year before that. So it's basically doubled in several years. So hitters are increasingly coming to the conclusion, or teams are, that guys should swing on 3-0 at least more often than they used to. And I think they used to swing on 3-0 more often like at the height of, you know, the PD era or whatever you want to call that previous high home run era. So that's part of it. It's just that when you're getting good results on balls in play, you have more incentive to swing. But also I think teams are realizing this more and more, except that I don't know if it actually applies to Andrew Romine. <laughs> Andrew Romine has batted 44 times with the count 3-0. He has swung zero times in his career. Uh, when mm-hmm. Andrew Romine has come up in his career after getting ahead 3-0, He's batted 278, but his on-base percentage is 698 because he's drawn 25 walks. That's 25 walks out of 44 opportunities. Andrew Romine is very bad, and swinging is hard. Garrett Cole (laughs) would throw a fastball. You don't know where the fastball is going to be, and Garrett Cole is is very good. And and let me also say this. Let's say that you want an Andrew Romine to swing a few times in three now just to throw off the pitcher, make him throw an off-speed. No team in baseball is paying attention to Andrew Romine's 3-0 swing <laughs> tendencies. It's just never happened. He's it, it wouldn't even cross anybody's mind. They'd be like, he's getting a fastball because he sucks. So from clearly every team's perspective, and from, I'm sure, Andrew Romine's perspective deep down, he thinks, I'm up 3-0. The chances of a pitcher throwing three consecutive strikes if I don't swing are low. Because pitchers, mm-hmm. as you and I have talked about a million times, pitchers are not actually that good at uh, at throwing strikes. Now, I don't actually know the outcome of this Romine plate appearance in question. He probably made an out on account of he is bad. Uh, but 
still, you you take your chances with the balls more than you take your chances with. So I think Andrew Romine should probably never swing again. <laughs> right. Well, this reminds me of a stat that Dan Hirsch tweeted just the other day, which is that Mike Trout hasn't swung at a 3-0 pitch since September 2016. And that is 83 consecutive 3-0 counts without swinging. I don't know if that's still up to date. That was a, a few days ago. But Mike Trout has gone close to two years without swinging at a 3-0 pitch. And he is the best hitter in baseball. So it's not just Andrew Romine. Sometimes it's just a, a personal preference. But if you're Mike Trout, probably you should swing at a 3-0 pitch every now and then, I would think, because you're Mike Trout and you've got a pretty good chance of getting on base and doing damage, more damage than a walk would do if you do swing. I remember, so, okay, 2011, Matt Carpenter made his debut. He faced 1-3, no count, he didn't swing. The next season, he faced 19, he didn't swing. The next season, 27, he didn't swing. Next season, 39, he didn't swing. Next season, 34, he didn't swing. Next season, this is in 2016, he faced 43-0 pitches, he swung once. I remember, I believe, August Fagerstrom wrote an article about this. I don't remember what happened, which means I'm going to find out right now. But <laughs> Matt Carpenter, at least, was playing some sort of weird little decoy game with the pitchers. Because mm-hmm. you can understand, maybe teams would be aware of what Matt Carpenter is doing in 3-0 and counts. Maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is similar to when, I remember last season, Clayton Kershaw finally threw a curveball when he was uh, behind in the count. In the playoffs, just trying to take a team by surprise. J.D. Martinez swung and hit a home run on that pitch. So, you know, things uh, things don't always go according to plan. But looking at Matt Carpenter here, I am, uh, I'm still running. This is live play index searching. This is very exciting for everyone. When Matt Carpenter, what was it, 2016, when he swung, he hit a home run. Look at that. Uh-huh. Right. October 2nd, Matt Carpenter had a 3-0 count, swung for the first time. Three and count. First time in hundreds of opportunities against Antonio Bastardo. The uh, the Cardinals are down two to one in the sixth inning. Carpenter came up with two on and two outs. He swung and he hit a home run. The Cardinals take the lead. That's fantastic. <laughs> End of the season. Uh, that's just uh, that's that's perfect. So looking at uh, a Trout, I can understand if you Trout, you figure the pitcher is going to be careful because you're Mike Trout, so he probably hasn't seen that many fastballs still in three no counts. This is speculation on on my part, but Bryce Harper this season has been in the most three and no counts. That's fifty. He swung seven times. Joey Votto has swung nine times. Justin Bohr has not swung yet. Nick Marcakis has not swung yet. Jason Kipnis has not swung yet. And Michael Conforto, other place. So the Trout is not alone, but the the leader Right now in three and no swings is Jan Herbis Solarte. Huh. Well, I didn't expect that, but 12 out of 23. <laughs> All right, then. All right. Question from CJ, Patreon supporter and the listener who I believe brought us the Vroom Vroom guy. Let's see what he has now. He says, what is the ideal height for a baseball player? I don't mean who's better between Jose Altuve and Aaron Judge. I mean like two feet, 10 feet, 40 feet. Baseball was obviously developed with normal human proportions in mind, but is that the limit? Would a 15-foot player be able to generate enough effortless power to make up for his enormous strike zone? Would a 400-foot player's base running be enough to offset that a slide into second would probably kill 2,700 people in the left field stands? Another way to ask this, what would be the best height for Mike Trout to be, assuming all his skills remained intact? Ideal—oh, man. So wait, was this hitters or pitchers or just in general? 
I guess just in general. I was thinking of it as a hitter-oriented question, right, but it could go either way. If you're a pitcher, the ideal height is 60 feet or something. You can just <laughs> basically put the ball in the catcher's glove, and there's there's nothing anyone yeah. can do. Yeah, You don't even have to throw that hard. So, yeah, the ideal yeah. height for a pitcher would, would be extremely tall because you would get everybody out, and there's nothing that they could You could basically you'd pitch, and you all would scape the batter's face. You, would be, you wouldn't be allowed. You couldn't right. pitch. Uh, yeah, I, hitter, I, what do you think? Hitter, I think it's I think it's the same, right? Because if you are a literal giant, then how could anyone? You either want to be Lilliputian or Brobdingnagian, right? You want to be huge <laughs> or tiny. Because, are you showing off? <laughs> well, I read my Gulliver's Travels, but either way. No one can throw you a strike, right? If you are tiny, it's like Eddie Goodell, but even more so, right? You're your Ant-Man. No one can throw you a strike. And if you are gigantic, then your strike zone is going to be way high off the ground. So the only way to throw a pitch in your strike zone would be to like lob it on a super high arcing trajectory. And if you're tall enough, maybe you can't even get it up there. And, of course, if you make contact, and I don't know if your bat is proportional to your size. Like, are you just holding a little toothpick bat? I guess maybe you are, right? Because there are rules about bat size, but not human size. So maybe you would still just have to hold on to, like, a little toothpick size bat. <laughs> that could be a problem. But if you're big enough, I don't know if it actually matters. Is it any <laughs> – how would – okay. You have, you have someone he's two feet tall. And you have somebody who's uh-huh. twelve feet tall. Now these are these are human miracles, but there's, I would imagine there's nowhere in the rule book that the baseball can't discriminate against person size. I'm guessing here, maybe there's an Eddie Goodell mm-hmm. rule, but I don't. Uh, you would know better than better than I would. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so either, because teams wouldn't do this. But mm-hmm. what, of course, this podcast presupposes is what if a team did do this, and if you just had a but like a two foot tall designated hitter, he'd walk every single time. Right. And yeah. because it would be so – like the strike zone would, would be genuinely uh, minuscule. And I don't know what – we're just kind of walking around. Like there are not a lot of two feet tall people in the world. <laughs> They're not uh, <laughs> able, the ones that exist. And, of course, there are children, but you need the person to be uh, able to work. There are employment rules for Major League Baseball. But if you could mm-hmm. find somebody who's just, just very small, everyone would hate you, even though you could say maybe we're being progressive by giving this person an opportunity they never would have gotten. But mm-hmm. you would have to draft a rule, right? Like if this person mm-hmm. were in good enough health and he was able to get in the box and he had an OBP of like, I don't know, 975 or something absurd, of course he'd never swing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what I would don't. Baseball would have to do something, but what, how could they possibly pass a rule they would have to just grandfather this person in, I guess, because mm-hmm. you you would not you would not be able to allow this. Because, but you also can't discriminate, right? Yeah, I I mean Eddie Goodell was banned and uh, you know rendered inactive. I think that the commissioner at the time, Happy Chandler, just said it was like making a mockery of the game, and that was that. And I guess no one has tested that since. I don't know if there's an official rule on the books. I don't believe so, and I think you would probably run into uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. I, I don't think you could prevent a person from playing in a, a game, I don't think. So you could do it. I'm pretty sure that uh, you could get away with it. You could launch a legal challenge if the commissioner tried to stop you, I, I wonder. So I think still that being a giant might be even more advantageous because 
I mean, you wouldn't have to run, right? You could just touch all the bases without (laughs) moving. So that is uh, another advantage. Just cover that ground in a single stride. If you have to play defense, you've got great range because you can also cover everything. So I I think being a an enormous person would probably be advantageous. And actually, the thing that made me think of this and that I think also inspired CJ's question, did you see the tweet that Eduardo Escobar sent out? Yes. When he, yeah. <laughs> so I will link to this if you haven't seen it. But he uh, he sent out, you know, a thank you letter. Some people take out the full page ad in the paper. And I don't know, for all I know, maybe he did that too. But he sent out a tweet and he said, thank you, Minnesota. And he thanked everyone. And then he had this picture of him. Like in a tuxedo, (laughs) but also like hundreds of feet tall and looming over target field with his hands up with a rainbow. I believe I saw someone in our Facebook group say that he created this image. I was wondering, like, did Eduardo Escobar open up Photoshop and make a a picture of giant him looming over target field? Apparently someone in our Facebook group made it and sent it to him in an Instagram comment like a year ago. And I guess Eduardo Escobar liked it so much that he just held on to it until now, (laughs) just in case he ever had to say thank you, Minnesota. So that's what made me think of it. He is giant. And uh, it looks like you would be probably pretty good at baseball. I I do wonder how many baseball players actually Photoshop or in this case MS Paint, but I don't really, yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. By the way, I can I can go back and if you're curious at all, Mike Trout. If you look at Baseball Reference, he, the last two years he's had 83 now counts and he hasn't swung. Mm-hmm. But I just realized Baseball Reference is including automatic intentional walks, which uh, mm. which is a complication. If you go to Baseball Savant. He's had just 47 3-0 counts the last year and a half. Now he also, of uh-huh. course, has not swung, but just something to keep in mind. With the intentional walks, yeah. baseball reference does not filter that out, even though there technically are no pitches. Uh-huh. All right. Question from Matthew, who is a Patreon supporter. And the same question actually was asked by a listener, Scott. This is in reference to a Mike Petriello tweet that uh, I think has since been deleted because people misinterpreted it. Poor Mike. I think he tweeted something about how the Dodgers, in addition to trading for, I don't know, Dozier or maybe it was Machado at that point, had also acquired extra roster spots. And so they were going to play with 28 roster spots for the rest of the season and the Twins were going to play with 22 or something. It was a joke, obviously. But uh, I think people took it seriously because uh, I guess Mike works for Major League Baseball and they figured he might know. So anyway, the question from Matthew is, if roster spots were actually tradable commodities, what kind of value would teams place on them? What type of team would trade or trade for such spots? And uh, Scott asked something similar. He said, how many wins is an extra roster spot worth to a contending team over two months of the season? Although I will note that it's not even really two months of the season, right? It's like one month of the season at this point because in September you don't have to worry about roster spots right okay so the type of team first of all the Rays would absolutely trade for another roster spot because they would just allow them to use more pitchers more relievers <laughs> so yeah. I think without question the Rays would seek more of of these out and they would just keep everyone up at the major league level now that would cost them some money I guess but they'll deal with it the league minimum stuff in terms of value just off the top of my head I would think it's we're looking at a small amount right because this is yeah. Not going to be an elite player. It's just something that would give you an advantage around the margin. So maybe 
a little more rest for relievers or a little more of an opportunity to, to pinch hit with a better player. But already teams kind of have their best 25 players for the most part in the majors, so you're not getting a great player. Get a little more rest, and I'll say maybe it's worth like between one and three wins, but if you think I'm wrong, then tell me why. Well, I've been asked before by listeners and readers what Shohei Otani is worth because he is both a hitter and a pitcher, or you know, if he were a full two-way player all the time, what would saving that roster spot be worth? And... I don't really know how to calculate that, but I know that Tom Tango, maybe among others, has made an attempt to and has concluded that it's not worth very much at all, like maybe less than a win probably, just because I guess for most teams, you're just not going to have that useful a player in that spot. Like Mm -hmm. now teams have the 10-day DL and they're shuffling relievers to AAA and back and forth again and Usually your 26th man is just not going to be that good and is not going to be used all that much. Like, you know, there are probably teams that would benefit from, say, having a pinch hitter on the bench now that benches have gotten so small because bullpens have gotten so big. But then how good is that pinch hitter actually going to be? And how often are you actually going to prefer having him pinch hit, possibly with a pinch hit penalty instead of your starter? So. I don't know that there is that much of an advantage for most teams, but if you are a team like the Dodgers, who do have a lot of depth and have a lot of multi-position guys and mix and match, I guess in those cases it might be more valuable. So it is kind of a team-by-team question, but regardless, I don't think it's that big a deal. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know what? We should, before we move on, we should just, because we, we talked about this briefly on in the previous podcast, but we kind of mm-hmm. glossed over the Diamondbacks. We mentioned them toward the end, and then we talked about mm-hmm. the relievers, and they added Eduardo Escobar and his gigantic self looming over <laughs> baseball stadiums. I don't know how he fits in the clubhouse, but I will point out that after results on Tuesday, the Diamondbacks are in first place in the yeah. NL West. They have overtaken the Dodgers by a half game. The Rockies also won. So right now the Dodgers are kind of in third place, although they're tied with the Rockies and they're behind the Diamondbacks. But to the Diamondbacks credit, they are right there. It's still hard to see them actually winning the division because the Dodgers are so loaded, but it's something that is happening. And meanwhile, in the American League, the A's have closed within one game, again, of the Mariners. So that's every- mm-hmm. everything is tightening up. Anyway, we can yep. get back to weird questions. All right, let's take a question from Aaron, another Patreon supporter, and he says, I've been inspired by some recent conversations about the value of consistency, even if that consistency is mediocre. I wondered how bad a pitcher could be if he were consistently bad and still be useful, so I'm giving it a crack. I was highly entertained by the listener who coined the name Vroom Vroom, so I will name my guy too. Let's call him the Civ. The sieve can be used for up to one inning per game, and he will always give up exactly one run in that inning. Under normal circumstances, a pitcher who gives up a run in inning isn't staying in the big leagues long, but if he could be counted on to just give up one run in any inning, he could be incredibly valuable in two or three run-save situations. Could this player make a big league roster? And if so, how many runs would a team need to be leading by to deploy the sieve in the seventh or eighth inning of a game? If you think that most closers will succeed in a two-run save spot at a rate that would make the sieve unfit for a roster spot, how could his spot on the team be saved if he could be deployed for any number of innings? Then teams could guarantee a win anytime they build a lead that exceeds the number of remaining innings. Given that teams often win games when they have sizable leads, how many wins do you think the sieve is worth? I presume traditional war standards won't play here since he will obviously be below replacement level by those standards. 
he would not make the major leagues. There's no way, right? Because he has, his minor league numbers would show an ERA or a runs allowed per nine of, of, of nine. He would, he would be yeah. awful. And by the no team would ever believe this is a real skill for so <laughs> long. And, and then they'd bump him up and they'd like at some point someone would dig into the minor league numbers and be like, you know what's weird about this guy? But it's so far fetched. It's like he's an apparition, right? It's like you're trying to make someone believe in poltergeists. And for you, his he would have by far the worst numbers of anyone ever in the minor leagues to make it to the majors. And then he'd come up and he'd continue to allow runs. So he'd be used in these really low leverage roles, if ever. And again, he's not making it to the major leagues. <laughs> no, but, I mean, he's not going to get there unless, I don't know, like if he were seen as a prospect and he just got a long enough leash, like if he were in rookie ball or something and he pitched. 20 times and they just kept running him out there just because i don't know maybe he looks good i don't know does he look good or does he look bad we don't know when but when does this start is he like this in little league <laughs> all the way through <laughs> that's a good question i, I don't know I, I mean if you knew that this was the way that the sieve worked and you counted on it for whatever reason then would he be valuable and useful? I, yeah, you you would be able to. He would be like the mop up man, and he would never yeah. like you would you would save like a I don't know one or pick up a few extra wins a season of games that you already are likely to win. But you know, there's still value in making sure that you actually win those games. So he would mm-hmm. be of modest value. He could even be the guy who's closing the World Series, for God's sake. He could be the last pitcher on the mound. He just has a two-run lead going into the ninth inning, and boom, there's a go. Here comes here comes Mr. Siv, or whatever his name is, John. John Siv. <laughs> and he, he comes in, and he closes it out. So he would be valuable, but the hardest part of this, aside from why is this happening, is getting teams to believe that this is happening. So yeah. I am extremely skeptical he would ever make the majors, but if he did, he would be one of the more valuable pitchers on the staff, I think. At least one of the uh-huh. maybe the most valuable reliever. Yeah. All right. Let's do a step last. Uh, you have given me warning that you might have a uh, short one. Yeah, well, I can do mine first, I, I guess. So this one came to us from listener Jay Keith in Los Angeles. He is also a Patreon supporter. This was uh, six days ago or so, but he said, On today's Angels broadcast, one announcer, he thinks it was Victor Rojas, remarked that with catcher Francisco Garcia making his Major League debut, the Angels have now used 51, I think he said, players this season, with 10 of them making their MLB debuts. That's crazy, said the other announcer. That was the extent of the discussion. (laughs) So... How crazy is this? What numbers or stories can you provide that put this in perspective? So the claim was that the Angels had used 51 players this season and that 10 of them had made their Major League debuts. Now, we did a stat blast not too long ago about the most players used on a team on a roster in a single season. And I looked up, there have been 99 teams with more than 51 players used, but of course this was said in July and there's still expanded September rosters ahead of us. The most 
players ever used by a team is 64 by the very injury-wracked 2014 Rangers. So 51 is not historic or anything yet. I guess it could be potentially, but not there yet. But the question about 10 of them making their Major League debuts... I did not know the answer to that, so I went to, I guess, unofficial sponsor of Statblast, Dan Hirsch of the Baseball Gauge, asked him to look this up, and this is not very notable, as it turns out. So this was, again, about six days ago, but at the time, the Angels were tied for the league lead for debuts in 2018, not even tied for the MLB lead, just the AL lead. So at that time, the Padres had had 10 debuts this season, the Mets had had 10 debuts this season, and then the Orioles had also had nine debuts this season. So That will claim. <laughs> yes, it probably already has. So that is not really that extraordinary. Now, the all-time top 100 list which, uh, as usual, dominated by dead ball era teams. We've been through this. Whenever you talk about weird team construction, it's always like the Federal League or some 19th century team or early baseball. Things were weird in early baseball. But the 2015 Yankees actually had the most debuts by any recent team. 18. 18 debuts by the 2015 Yankees. I would not have expected a Yankees team to lead this list in recent years, but I guess it kind of makes sense given that a lot of those players were probably the players who are good now, and uh, the Yankees had a successful youth movement, so that's how it came about. Now, Dan went above and beyond, and he answered a question that I had not asked, which is how many teams have gone an entire season without having a single player make his Major League debut for that team. It turns out that 34 teams in Major League history have not had a single guy make a debut, and the last most recent on that list was the 2004 Reds. Did not have a single Major League debut on that team. So that is the answer. Pretty good. I uh, I was mm-hmm. just ready. You can run the search on Baseball Reference as well. And in 1912, the Detroit Tigers had 27 players make their Major League debut, which is a lot. That's the yeah. second most. 27 is the number. First place. The 1915 Philadelphia Athletics, 35. 35. (laughs) 35 debuts. That team, of course, they won 99 games and lost the World Series. Rumors of them throwing the World Series in 1914. The following year, they won 43 games. Most of their best players were sold or left for the, I believe, Federal League. Connie Mack Mm -hmm. was not willing to match offers anyway. That's a lot of debuts in 1915. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have a short stat blast of my own. This is... Similar, Mike Petriello wrote an article not too long ago at MLB.com about how American League shortstops were hitting so well. I could just, let's forget the American League qualifier and just go with Major League shortstops, Major mm. League shortstops as a uh, as the qualifier. So this is a, this is a good old-fashioned TOPS Plus stat blast segment. This TOPS mm-hmm. Plus, for anyone who doesn't remember, compares performance against the overall league split. So, for example, in 1925, Major League shortstops had a TOPS Plus of 80. That means they hit about 80% as well as the league average overall. 100, of course, is average. Better than 100 is better than average. So, shortstops this season have a TOPS plus of 102. They mm. have been better than average. The only other time in history shortstops have been better than average was 1947, when they also had a TOPS plus of 102. So, when you look at this, let's just go back... Mm, 
five years or something. In 2013, I'm just going to read these numbers in order, starting in, I don't know, 2013, 91, this is TOPS Plus, 91, 94, 91, 96, 96, 102. Shortstops are having their best offensive season in like, what is that, 70 years, basically. Mm. And the season is, of course, not over, but there are a lot of very good shortstops. I think we already knew we were in something of a shortstop golden era, at least Mm -hmm. offensively and probably all around because they're all amazing but this is just further confirmation. It's not just American League shortstops. Everybody is doing well. Shortstops yeah, above league average. Yeah, I bet if you just put this question to people, they would have thought, well, it was probably the time when A-Rod was around and Nomar and Jeter and Tejada. But that wasn't even like the previous high, let alone the all-time high, right? I mean, it was yeah. good, but not that great, really. Yeah. No, they, uh, the shortstops have been comfortably around 90 or 95 for quite a while but now just now they are taking off and i haven't checked in on catchers that's another kind of specialty position but catchers this season oh they're okay they're they're bad so that's normal <laughs> yes all right well this is something that you brought up just recently so this is a question from dunnigan who says jeff perlman wrote an article at the athletic about how bad a season chris davis is having he took some heat in the comments section about how the article may have been mean-spirited My question is, hypothetically, how bad would Chris Davis have to be, or we can just say any player have to be, before journalists stop writing about him completely? At some point, he would be so bad, there would probably be an increase in how many people write about him. But at a certain point, it would be too ugly. Would it happen at a 100 batting average, a 50 batting average, negative 10 war? As a writer, how do you balance doing your job versus not kicking a player while he's down? Okay, so we're talking like journalists, not blogs, right? Because blogs would just they would feast <laughs> on a player who's batting like 075 <laughs> yes i i guess so i mean everyone would mention it right I, I you know i don't know what the journalist and blog difference these days even is but i don't know professional versus amateur should we say i don't know yeah i mean did people ever stop writing about which which was the like adam dunn in 2011 when he batted 159 people were writing about mm. adam dunn all the way through to the end. People were writing about Chris Tillman his last few years through to his end. So I don't, I hmm, I think there's a sweet spot where a player is very bad, but still playing where, hmm. No, I don't think, I don't think there's a lower boundary. I think if, if somebody goes up there and he's allowed, he's just awful ERA of nine and he's not only giving up one run per inning or if you're batting 050 or something, I, I don't think, I don't think you would get to a point where no one, Writes because every, writing so much of, of of being a writer is about finding the an opportunity to write about something peop, other people aren't covering, and you mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to look past it. Every time you sort the leaderboards, you'd be like, "Oh right, I should talk to this guy and try to figure out what's going on." The player wouldn't yeah. want to talk, probably, but mm-hmm. you would still you'd have to write about it. You would have to write about the worst season in baseball history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the tone with which you would approach it would change hopefully or or the way that you write it like you know if it's just a a slump for a while and it's bad but it's not historic or anything you might just write about the slump and say this guy's been slumping and that's fine but at a certain point it reaches a level where you start to almost be more interested in like how the guy feels than how he plays like how are you holding up is this a psychological thing you kind of want to get in his head and you know 
help him or figure out what sort of angst this is causing. So at a certain point, you wouldn't just do like a, you know, here are all the stats about how bad this guy is because that would seem kind of mean-spirited and kicking him when he's down. So Mm -hmm. you would want to, you know, approach it with more compassion and nuance and hopefully access. Yeah, I will point out that when Chris Davis, the Orioles' Chris Davis, was benched for a week and a half on June 11th, his OPS at that time was 454. That's very bad. Since then, it's 705. He's making progress. Still not good. Still not what you're looking for, but that's an improvement for just the month of July. His OPS is 695, which is basically the same. Uh, not <laughs> he's, he's not having rousing success, but he's at least starting to look like a Major League Baseball player again, so... Good for mm-hmm. Chris Davis, and you know the other version of this is Cole Calhoun, right? He had yes, that he's doing absolutely, great. yeah. He had a terrible first two months of the season. He disappeared. He was hurt, and on May thirty first, Cole Calhoun had an OPS yes. of three seventy four. Yes, he he had a three WR, WRC plus three. Huh. Yeah, and over the best month and a half, his OPS is one point oh one eight. He's been one of the <laughs> yep. best hitters in baseball. What a dumb mm-hmm. sport this is. <laughs> yep. All right. Bill says, can you explain why defenses sometimes make changes to the shift or their defensive positioning with two strikes? In particular, why a third baseman who is initially playing where the shortstop would play will swap positions in the shift with the shortstop who is initially playing roughly where the second baseman would play. Okay, so hold on. Let me walk through this again. Third baseman is Mm -hmm. covering the bunt before there are Mm -hmm. two strikes because the third baseman is most familiar with covering the bunt. And then you assume the bunt is taken away Mm -hmm. when there are two strikes. Not always true, but mostly it's true unless it's like Brandon Belt or whoever the other person I wrote about is who uh, Mm -hmm. put down the two strike bunt. So then at that point, you you already are moving the person away from covering for the, for the bunt. So you have this overshift. Third baseman goes away. So then, then the shortstop, I think, is just kind of covering his normal position, his normal ground. Mm-hmm. So that would be my explanation. Yeah. And I think part of it is just that the direction that batters tend to hit the ball may change with two strikes because guys approach changes or, you know, some do at least. So teams may have count specific spray charts and positioning instructions so you know stand here for this guy or don't stand here for this guy when he has two strikes on so sometimes you will see them move around and i know it was suggested i think by dan fox maybe recently that one reason why it looked like shifts were plateauing or even decreasing last season i think they've increased since but we thought that maybe we had reached peak shift and yeah i think one reason it was proposed that it only looked like that because the stats were showing shifts on balls in play basically like on the outcome of the at bat and by that time teams may have stopped shifting so they may have shifted earlier in the plate appearance but then stopped shifted or stopped shifting or shifted differently later in the plate appearance so that may have been skewing things although i guess now that we have stat cast in theory that should account for that kind of thing and you should be able to see when a team is shifting or not whenever you want to look at at, at the count Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. I was always troubled by having shift data that only was on balls in play. By the way, this is a throwaway number, but because I was curious, I wanted to look up batters with the most strikeouts after getting ahead 3-0. and This season, mm-hmm. it's Nick Marcakis. He leads the league with five. And the leader, <laughs> since we have this information, was uh, Jim Tomey in 1997, Bobby Abreu in 2001, and Paul Goldschmidt in 2015 with eight. 
eight strikeouts after getting ahead three and out. This means nothing, but now you know. <laughs> All right. Let's do one more because you've got a chat to get to. So this one is also from Dunnigan. I'm not checking the last names to make sure it is the same Dunnigan, but I'm guessing it's the same Dunnigan. So Dunnigan says, with the Yankees adding to their already stacked bullpen by trading for Zach Britton, I'm wondering at what point it no longer makes sense to pay market price for relievers at the deadline. I assume the value of adding one good reliever to the bullpen decreases as the skill level of the current bullpen goes up. Britain will likely see fewer innings with the Yankees since their bullpen is already crowded with good relievers compared to if he would have gone to a different contender. Because of this, he will likely add less value to the Yankees and therefore is worth less to them than a team with a weaker pen, and etc., etc. You get the point. Is there a point where a team reaches diminishing returns for relievers and are the Yankees at that point? Yeah, I think the Yankees are right around that point, right? They would be the Yankees or, or maybe the, the Astros who are just so loaded with pitchers that, they're, as you know, there's only so much medium and high leverage to go around. Now, you could say if you're making a move at the deadline, you're also it's an insurance policy in case somebody gets hurt or becomes ineffective over the next two months. So right now, mm-hmm. it's not like there's harm in having too many good pitchers because someone is probably going to get hurt or start to suck. But mm-hmm. when you're going into the playoffs, there's just there's only so many pitchers you can use in in spots that matter. So you, maybe you could, if you have like a seventh really good reliever, maybe you can find him one or two high leverage innings. But other than that, he's mostly going to be playing in in roles of of lesser importance. And at that point, no, you, it's just not adding that that much to your team. So I don't know mm-hmm. exactly where the line is, but I have to think the Yankees are around it, which might help explain why they traded Adam Warren. Yeah, that's true. Although I wonder, once you get to the playoffs, and obviously they're looking forward to the playoffs, I mean, no team really has had enough relievers to actually do the bullpen game that everyone on the internet has proposed for years, game after game. So in theory, you could do that, right? You could just collect, you know, eight dominant relievers, and you actually kind of could do the bullpen game every single day if you wanted to. Now, maybe they're diminishing returns because, you know, you have Severino and Severino's really good and he's got to pitch sometimes. And I don't know, maybe Sabathia is good enough that you want him pitching every now and then. But if you could get eight dominant setup men or closer type late inning arms, in theory, that would still make you better, right? Because you could have each of them go an inning in every single playoff game, basically, Mm -hmm. with all the off days. So you could do that. Yeah, okay. That's that's. Fair. That's convincing. I don't know what you do with your starting rotation at that point, but you... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In terms of how the practical application, I think the Yankees are, are around that point. But, you know, you look at look at the Astros last season, they had what I thought was a really good bullpen. Then they got to the playoffs and they barely wanted to touch it. They were using Brad mm-hmm. Peacock and, and stuff like that out of the bullpen. So... Things happen, yeah. but yeah, you you can have too many good pitchers. Yeah, and maybe they're diminishing returns in that there's probably another team that needs that guy more than you do. Like even if you could do the full bullpen game, that team would also have the option to do that, but would probably need that guy more in yeah. a conventional strategy. So, you know, he, he might not be worth as much to you as he is to someone else. Agreed. All right, that will do it. I'm actually going to answer one more here because I already answered it via email. So this question is from Arjun, who says that on July 7th, the Diamondbacks defeated the Padres 20-5. to Although that's an uncommon score, what was more interesting to me was that the Diamondbacks outscored the Padres in all but two innings, the fifth, which was scoreless, and the ninth, in which they didn't bat. My question is this. 
how common is it for a team to beat the opposing team in every single inning of a game? And related question that we just got from Bobby, he says he's watching highlights of that Nats-Mets blowout, and in addition to piling on a ridiculous number of runs, the Nats scored in six of the eight innings in which they batted. As a Cubs fan, I vaguely remember them losing a game in the 90s in which one of their rivals managed to score in every inning, and hearing that it was a pretty rare thing. I've kept half an eye open for such games ever since and haven't seen any, though I could have missed a lot of them. Was it actually the Cubs who had that happen to them, or am I remembering it wrong? How rare is it for a team to score a run in every inning in which they bat? Is it unassisted triple play rare, perfect game rare, no-hitter rare? And is it more or less likely in the true outcomes era we're watching now? So these are obviously related questions. So Bobby and Arjun, it has happened 19 times in baseball history. 19 times a team has scored in every inning of a game, and you do remember right, Bobby, this happened to the Cubs. It was the Rockies at Wrigley Field, May 5th, 1999. The Rockies beat the Cubs 13-6, to and they scored in every inning of that game. There have been 23 perfect games in Major League history, and 19 times that a team has scored in every inning of a game. So, yeah, it is pretty much perfect game rare. There have been 15 unassisted triple plays. So it's actually right in the middle. It's right between those two. It is slightly less rare than the unassisted triple play, slightly more rare than the perfect game. I don't know if the true outcomes matter all that much, but obviously the scoring environment matters. So if it's a high scoring environment, it's more likely to happen. And in fact, it has happened more often lately. So this actually happened twice in 2016 alone. The Brewers and the White Sox did it. Happened once in 2014. The Tigers did it, but still pretty rare. And as for Arjun's question about whether a team has ever outscored its opponent in every inning of a game, no, that has not happened. So 19 teams have scored in every inning of a game but no team has ever outscored its opponent in every inning. The closest anyone has come, September 13th, 1964, the Cardinals beat the Cubs 15-2, and they outscored them in eight innings and tied with one run in the last inning. So pretty close. Okay, so that will really do it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. And five listeners who have done so already include the following. Daniel Moorhead, Tyler Duncan, Nathan Baird, Drew Whalen, and Zubaz. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or any other platform, just about any other platform. If we're not on a platform and you want us to be, let me know, unless it's Spotify, because I've tried multiple times and it seems like we're still not there. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with one more episode this week. Keep swinging, swinging.